0: The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit Ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Lutie.
1: There's a few uh, events that have taken place in my life that, in a sense, I've commemorated with uh, messages. Some of them haven't been recorded. I remember one of them; it was called uh, Two Hands," and it was a message about our announcement of our adoption of Harper, and the audio didn't capture. And uh, this is quite a long time ago; she's almost ten. But uh, that, and uh, but I've always sort of seen God work something into a truth in my life when we go through some very significant things as a as a family. And so this is one of those messages. I'm not sure how to prepare you for it other than to say it's going to be unique. uh, But that's part of the fun. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we just submit this time to you. And I pray that not one of us would leave the way we've arrived. But that each one of us would be impacted by your Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. Lord, we want to grow up to be the church. And I pray that you'd mature us, that you would touch us in the midst of this message that you would speak straight to us. May this message be perfectly designed for every single person in this room. You know what each of us is needing to hear. We ne- you know the exhortation. You know the correction. You know what is necessary, and I pray that you would bring it in your way, which is so gentle and so perfect. It's in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ that we ask this. Amen. The floating Milky Way wrapper. A story of God's amazing transforming grace. Typically, you'll notice in my subtitles I say a study uh, in or of, and this one's a story. The Ellerslie students that have just arrived know that we sort of go back and forth from uh, different styles of communication. That's part of what adds texture to truth, is when you hit it from different angles. And so there's a story in this one. At the same time, there's teaching. It's just a unique blend uh, of it together. And this is an actual story that is not just my story. It's a story of everyone who believes. This is my story. This is my song. Uh, this is everyone's story and everyone's song that believes. This is the story of Scripture. And it starts with the premise that something in the beginning looks very bad. And at first blush, you would say, oh, all is lost. And yet, that very thing that would be the trigger or the initial signal that all is lost actually is transformed before our very eyes into a picture of God's grace. There was a, a book written quite a few years ago, Hind's Feet in High Places. And this character, Much Afraid, is given two guides to carry her up to the high places. And they're these shadowy characters. In my mind, they sort of look like ringwraiths uh, in my imagination, But uh, their names are sorrow and suffering. And yet at the very top of the journey, at the very conclusion of it, they sort of whip off their hoods and you find out their real identity, and that is grace and glory. And this is the story of Christianity. That which at first blush may appear to be a negative is anything but. It turns into the greatest positive in our life. And such is the case of the floating Milky Way wrapper. So introducing the floating Milky Way wrapper. It's the initial signal. It's the first evidence, the key moment, the exposure, the sting, the laying down of the cards. So a sting operation is when someone conspires. I mean, the police can run a sting too, but you know, I always picture the old-fashioned sting. Uh, It's the con job. It's the one that sets up this whole elaborate conspiracy to get you to rob you of all you have and to get the take without being caught. And by the time you're awakened to the fact that you've been robbed, they're long gone. That's the sting. Uh, It's the laying down of the cards where you've been playing this whole thing. you got all the pile of gold in the middle of the table, and then it comes the moment where you need to see, and the revelation comes. See, that's the floating Milky Way wrapper. It's the moment where something is exposed. Something comes to the surface that triggers a domino effect, or the entire story unfolds from that point. So a key Greek word that helps us understand this is phronēo. It's actually a fairly common word in scripture. Paul seems to like this word, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time teaching the word or even where it's used in scripture as much as I'm going to give you the concept because that's what I'm going to teach from. But the word is phronēo, and it's basically a mental lens through which one sees reasons and decides, a perspective, a point of reason, a way of thinking. In the book of Philippians, Paul uses this. In fact, you could even say that this is one of the key themes, if not the big idea of the book of Philippians, is to have a heavenly phreneo, to have a heavenly mind. You'll notice Paul uses the term mind. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Some translations would say, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Technically, if we're going to break it down, it's the word phreneo. So let us have this phreneo, in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so he had a freneo, he had a mental lens, which we are going to liken to glasses. And so in every situation in life, you can look at that situation in two ways. I have spent the first two weeks of this semester teaching the students that there's a first and there's a second in every situation. So you have an old covenant, you have a new covenant, you have an Adam, and you have a Jesus. You see, The first, if you're found in Adam, you come under Adam's just condemnation. But if you're found in Christ, you actually receive the reward that is due him. I mean, it's sort of strange. I mean, Adam, you weren't even there when he ate that fruit. And yet you, because you were in him, because you were in his loins, all these generations later, when he sinned, we all partake in that. We share in that decision. But... When you by faith put off the old, put off the first man, and you enter into Jesus by faith, even though you were not there on that cross, you did not live that perfect life he lived, you share in his perfect life when you believe. And so as a result, there's a first and a second. Well, the same is true with these glasses. You live in a hostile territory, a world that is decaying, it's fraying about the edges, And every circumstance in life can be looked at one of two ways. You could look at it with Adam glasses on, or you could look at it with Jesus glasses on. And depending on which glasses you choose will define how that story will play out in your life, how you will perceive it. Now, if I were to just say, politics in the United States, I know, most of us immediately go to our Adam glasses, and we get disgusted. And then, of course, some of you are like, I'd love to hear the perspective that Jesus would have on this. You know that God isn't altogether uh, averse to the notion of us seeing the effects of our sin and recognizing in this nation the just judgment that comes with turning our back on God so that we can be awakened afresh. You see, sometimes the discipline comes by us literally seeing the results Of defying God. This nation is not in a healthy state. Every one of us knows that. However, have you ever thought of getting excited about the fact that, well, you know what? Uh, We're bound to begin to awaken sooner or later here. I mean, we're getting close to the crisis point. Yeah, you see, you might as well stick on those glasses. It makes you a lot happier in life. What do you see? So I'm going to go through a list of just stories in the Old Testament. I'm going to ask you what you see. I'm going to ask you to sort of go through the exercise of putting on some glasses. You can look at it through the natural realm, through the lens of this earth, through the lens of Adam. And you'll notice that despair is right around the corner when you, when you look at it that way. I don't ever watch the news. It's very purposeful. I remember this one guy. He's not a Christian. He's uh, some herbalist guy. And he sends out these wild-eyed newsletters you know, with all sorts of statements in it. He's, he's pretty extreme. And every now and then it gets in our mail and I'm just sort of sitting and seeing it there. And Leslie was telling me the other day that, you know what, that guy says that you should never watch the news. The greatest thing you could ever do for your health is to not watch the news. And I was saying, you know what, that is a truth. Uh, because the news only can look at life through this lens. It has an earthly mentality and it seems to thrive off of death and decay. If God had a news bureau what would it look like what would it tell us if you were to see god's newspaper every day what would it focus on it's just a really interesting thought but that's precisely what paul says think on these things and then he goes through a list which has nothing to do with the newspaper or the newsroom of today and so if you really want to fix your gaze on that which god's fixed on we're going to have to put on some new glasses and look at everything in this life a little different So what do you see? Joseph. So we're in the Old Testament here, and Joseph, who's a very key character in the Old Testament that many of you know of, but we got a problem. He is sold to the Ishmaelite traders by his brothers. Bye bye. See ya. He's gone forever, as far as we're concerned. I mean, if you just if we stop the story there, it's just whoa. I mean, Jacob, that's all he has, is all he can see is through, it's Joseph's father. Jacob can only see the loss of his son. He's even handed that coat of many colors covered in blood. Uh, He was devoured by wild beasts. And oftentimes, that's the floating Milky Way wrapper for us. We hear, yeah, you see, this uh, this is Joseph's. I mean, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, it could be wild beasts. And that's the news you receive in life. That's the signal that you receive. The question is, how are you receiving it? What do you see in that situation? When Pharaoh issues a decree to kill all Israelite babies. Now, these stories, if any of you know the stories, are stories of massive redemption. I mean, some of the greatest stories, in the tales of Scripture, are wrapped up in what I'm talking about here. But there's a very important child that is born, And his name is Moses. At the very time, Pharaoh issues a decree to kill all babies. We have a problem. So when that decree comes, what do you see? Do you recognize that this actual decree is being turned? Do you recognize that Joseph being sold into slavery and being purchased by Potiphar and actually ending up in Egypt at such a time when a famine is coming is very, very purposeful on God's part? How about... The fact that Pharaoh issues a decree which causes this little baby to be stuck in a little floaty device and sent down the Nile to end up in Pharaoh's very house. huh? You see, you have to have the right lens for these things. What looks like absolute disaster is anything but if you put on the right glasses. When Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go, okay, so we've had, we've been... In slavery now is Israel, and we're pretty miserable, okay? Uh, It's been a long season for us of brick making and having whips on our back. And suddenly, we have a, a rescuer, potentially? Well, this is good. Imagine being Moses. It's like, okay, God, I'm willing to do this. You just need to do your part. So, Pharaoh, let my people go. No. In fact, let's amp it up. You need to make the same amount of bricks or even more without the straw, or with half the straw. I mean, this is ridiculous. It got worse. You see, the floating Milky Way wrapper is right there in front of us, and it's literally a trigger. How do you see it? When you see Pharaoh saying no, what goes to your mind? This is terrible. Instead of recognizing, you know that with every no that Pharaoh said, God's glory became more evident? And ultimately, what they wanted to do was just go out and worship in the wilderness and come back, and remain slaves. Instead, what happens? By the time it's all over, they're free. And not just the men, but the women. And not just the men and the women, but the children. Not just the men, women, and the children, but the cattle. And not just the men, women, and the children, and the cattle, but all the gold of Egypt. (laughs) Took it all out with them. When the Red Sea blocks the way of forward movement. So how are you feeling in that moment? You got the uh, the upset Egyptian military coming at you from one side. you got a big mountain over here, a big mountain over here, and you got a Red Sea backing you up. Put, put on the right glasses. What do the wrong glasses say? We're dead. We should have never left. We should have never come up with this ridiculous idea. What does God's lens say? You can part this. Watch what my God will do. When Lazarus lies dead, wrapped in grave in a tomb. Uh, so what lens do you have on? You see, the promise of God says this sickness will not end in death, and yet, as far as we can tell, this guy's dead. Four days dead. But Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> but what do you see? Do you see that Jesus, the resurrection and the life, is coming to Bethany? Do you see what he's going to do in and through this? It's something far more powerful than if he just healed him. He's doing something greater. So when you see the floating Milky Way package, you need to realize that it's a signal not for doom, but it's a signal that God will do something even greater. Some of you are like, what is the floating Milky Way package? (laughs) See, this is a story. When your Messiah is betrayed with a kiss... That's a, that's a potentially dark moment, guys. Uh, by the way, all the disciples, it was such a dark moment that they all fled. So we got serious issues. Your Messiah, the one that you said is the Christ, is uh, betrayed into the hands of sinners. Hey, uh, if you're the Messiah, get yourself out. Wrestle, run, do something, but your life is too important. And then to be falsely accused and have him keep his mouth shut. And then to have him be scourged with a cat of nine tails, crown of thorns pressed upon his brow, beard ripped out, spat upon his cheek. Do something! To see your Messiah pinned to two pieces of wood and to not speak in his own defense. He's innocent. He's innocent. This can only go bad. He can't die. He can't die. Which glasses are you wearing? You see, when you're wearing earthly glasses, this would look like defeat. To every normal human being on earth, this would look like defeat. When in actuality, stick on the heavenly glasses. What are you seeing? The greatest victory in all of world history is taking place. The redemption of all of our souls. Everything that matters to each of us in this room is happening right then. In the moment when the Milky Way wrapper is floating. And it looks bad. But this is a signal not of defeat, but of victory if you put on the right glasses. So I'm going to shift focus here and we're going to talk about how the two kingdoms work. So if I were to stick the kingdom of darkness over here and the kingdom of heaven on this side, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of heaven both have something in common and that is that they take. However, Over here, it's called stealing, because they take what is not theirs to take. God takes that which is rightfully his. So, two kinds of taking. Taking what is someone else's, boo, bad sin. You see, that's stealing, that's thievery. But taking what is yours, doesn't that sound sort of bad, too? However, let's let's talk about this. The first kind of taking is of the devil. It's called stealing. The second kind of taking is what makes the kingdom of heaven work. It's called faith. Isn't that an interesting term for it? What do you think faith is? God says, that's yours. I want you to grab it. I want you to go after it. And so actually, this other kind of taking is not stealing, even though some of us feel sort of guilty when we go after the promises of God. It's like, God, I I really don't want to be rude. But, you know, I I, I thought I was supposed to, but I, I don't feel worthy of this. And yet faith, listens to what the word of God says, which says, my shed blood has opened a way for you to be redeemed and saved and even called my child. So in that position of faith, I want you to reach out and take that which I've made available to you. It's called faith. You see, the kingdom of heaven functions off of this. When Jesus was here on this earth, this is how he functioned. He took of what the Father made available to him by faith, and exercise it in this earth. The entire cross picture is a evidence of that. He saw something that we didn't see. There was a joy set before him that enabled him to endure something. The rest of us were falling apart at the seams watching. All the disciples flee. He saw something. He saw something greater. And this is the phreneo, the mind that we are to have in us. This is the picture. He doesn't say, have the mind of Paul. We're supposed to have the mind of Christ, the attitude, the perspective, the lens that when we face these trials, the bluster of the enemy, when the enemy is stripping the Messiah of his clothes, his dignity, his very life, he is robbing, he is stealing something that does not belong to him, that we see something different taking place. That God is actually reaching out and grabbing that which belongs to him. In that very act of thievery at the cross, where the dignity of our Messiah was stripped away, what do we see? We see God reaching out and claiming that which is his. It's an amazing picture. The twos, devil grabbing, God redeeming. Devil stealing, boo. God rewarding, Devil crucifying, God resurrecting. You see, the devil has an agenda in this earth, and he wants to destroy you. He really does want to create bad news. But God is in the business of good news. We have a tendency to have a magnetic pull towards bad news. I I don't know that I could really explain why we, even as Christians, redeemed... Have a have, want to watch the news and just get upset. We know if I've always, I picture these wives that say, honey, could you turn that off? I just, I just need to hear this. Why? Why do you need to hear this? Because I want to get mad. <laughs> I mean, there is something about watching modern politics. It's gotten to the point where it's really hard to even cheer for anyone. Because no matter what is said, even if you agree with the political persuasion of it, the way it's being brought forth isn't healthy. It's like, now I have to cheer on a guy who doesn't demonstrate the quality of Christ, but at least he has a good fiscal policy. This is hard for us. Yeah, so if you're stuck with these lenses on, you're going to be miserable. acid. You have issues. Okay, so listen to Joel 1 through4, I'm sorry, Joel 1, four, and then I'm going to grab from Joel 2:25. and you're going to see this statement that God is revealing. Now remember, Joel is the scripture that is going to be referenced in the book of Acts when Peter gets up to speak about the giving of the Holy Spirit. That which the palmer worm has left has the locust eaten, and that which the locust has left has the canker worm eaten. And that which the cankerworm worm has left has the caterpillar eaten. In other words, our fields are completely eaten up. We've lost everything. This side of the ledger, the devil's side of the ledger, has come in, and judgment has literally wreaked its havoc on the people of Israel. Everything has been robbed. Everything has been stolen. So in that very moment comes a promise And in your life, when you feel that the canker worm and the caterpillar has eaten that which was entrusted to you, there's a battle of the ages that is taking place around us. Listen to what the statement is. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust. You see, they have worked their robbery upon your soul, upon your life, And yet, God is a restorer. Instead of just focusing on the fact that something is being taken from you, you've lost something, you've gone through a difficulty, your dignity has been sabotaged, whatever it may be, your reputation, to recognize that God is a restorer. And in all of those situations where you see a locust eating away at your life, to recognize that as you submit these things to God, put on the right glasses, what are you gonna see? God's going to restore that. In fact, the way that I look at it is this. A statement I've used for years in my spiritual life. I say it to Leslie a lot. And I pray it. God taxed the enemy kingdom. If he takes that, let's get it back 100-fold. In other words, I go for multiplication of return. God is a restorer, and he doesn't just give it back any more than if I robbed from you, God would say, give it back plus interest. All right, so if the devil's going to rob from me, give it back plus interest. Tax him in the process and put a hefty percentage on it, God. So the mystery of Joseph. So the devil's grab. Joseph is thrown into a pit. You see, Joseph has dreams. I don't know if you remember them, but they were quite extravagant. And it's pretty obvious that God has his hand on this young man. He's a favored young man, and the devil goes after him to devour him, to destroy him, and this doesn't just happen once in his life. Some of you might be able to identify with Joseph. You've chosen a narrow way called Christianity, and what you found is that, yeah, people in this world have challenges because we're in a fallen world, and life just brings challenges. However, as a Christian, you have the normal challenges of life plus the spiritual challenges That the enemy brings your way because he wants to stop your forward spiritual progression, you have bonus challenges. Isn't that fun? See, most people didn't tell you that when you came to the cross. You know, it's like, could you imagine? It's like, would you like to give your life to Jesus? By the way, there's going to be bonus challenges in your life. That's why I just get it out up front. You know, it's just like, let's just get this out up front. It's going to cost you everything. You know, let's not mince words. To follow Jesus means you get life and life abundant. But it will cost you everything. So joseph everything in this story looks terrible the devil makes his grab but then there's a divine redemption god takes what the enemy meant to destroy and he turns it so joseph delivering his family in the time of drought he was perfectly positioned for such a time in history it's an incredible story i'm not going to go into it it's just the fact this is how god works and listen to what joseph himself says but as for me he's speaking to his brothers who sold him, who threw him into the pit, you thought evil against me. Their thoughts were not from God. In other words, it was the devil that was literally conspiring to destroy, to rob, to steal. But God meant it unto good. There's this, I think it was Dwight that was talking about judo, you know, where one of the tactics of judo is to use someone's weight and, and leverage against them, or weight and energy and strength and momentum against them. So, you know, you can actually take down a lot bigger guy by him moving against you, and then you somehow doing some Judo, uh, Dwight, Schubert type of move and flipping him. (laughs) That's exactly what God does all the time with the devil. The devil moves in our life, and if we respond with a second mentality, it's like it takes what the enemy meant to to destroy us and flips around, and he ends up on his head. It's actually a really fun way to live. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. So the mystery of the cross, the devil has a grab, the betrayal, the capture, the scourging, the spitting, the ripping, the the mocking, the nailing. Whoa, we got a robbery, a heist of great proportions taking place in front of us. And yet the whole while, God is bringing about the divine redemption, the crushing, the judging, the saving, the conquering. One of the the ways that I've described the cross uh, is you have Jesus who looks so helpless up there. But this one who looks helpless, pinned to two pieces of wood, is actually on the offensive. We just don't see it with natural eyes. And that when the judgment of the sin is taking place, that you basically have this idea of Jesus reaching out and grabbing the devil by the scruff of the neck, grabbing the power of sin, grabbing the flesh, grabbing all the powers of darkness and yanking them into that judgment. And what got judged on that cross was that first life, was all the powers of darkness, and he crushed the head in his weakness, in what appears at first to be disaster is in fact the exact opposite of it. So listen to what it says about that cross in 1 Corinthians. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they knew what they were stepping into in that situation, they wouldn't have done it. In other words, it was God's wisdom. God sees bigger than us. He sees bigger than the devil. That's why we can have confidence in every circumstance if we trust him and we choose not to put on these lenses. We don't put on the glasses of earth and say, woe is us and give way to despair and depression. But we actually choose deliberately to put off those glasses to say, no, I will not agree with the earthly realm. I will not agree with what this natural realm boasts and what it's saying because it whispers all sorts of things. You're doomed. It's over. It's there's no chance for you. Your bank account gets low, your health gets low, your family relationships seem to be crumbling. I mean, it gets worse before it gets better. You ever notice that? You pray praying, you pray and you pray, and what's happening here? It sure doesn't look like prayer's working. At first, it actually seems to go the opposite direction. Hold on! Hold the line! Keep that faith going! A personal story of floating Milky Way rappers. See, you guys have been waiting for this. (laughs) If I was going to dedicate this to someone, it would be to Annie Weshey, Harda Artsma, and Susie Olfert would deserve a little dedication in this one, too. That'll make sense as we progress, not because they're in the story. They're probably very glad they're not. But the amount of investment that these three that I just mentioned have had in two little lives in my family is very significant to me. Uh, There were two little babies that were born almost four years ago now, and they were in the, uh, uh, the country of Haiti, and... We received pictures and and statements of uh, their health and their condition. We were told that they were abandoned. And we needed someone to go down there immediately just to tend to their physical needs to to save their lives. And Annie Weshe went down. I don't know. It was like a week preparation. She was down there. And uh, the story is actually quite amazing. I'm not going to go into that story today, but it plays an underpinning to what I'm going to share today with the uh, the floating Milky Way wrapper. A personal story of floating Milky Way wrappers. So, the other day, and if you have your notes, it's going to seem like Eric's getting a little weird sticking uh, some kind of Hollywood picture in, uh, in my notes. Uh, let me explain what this is. When we were... We were noticing a tremendous amount of flack that was coming our way as a family uh, this, these last two weeks, especially. I sat down with my kids, I think it was Wednesday night of this week, and I uh, said, kids, have you guys noticed that it's been hard to have a good attitude? It's been hard to get along with each other. It's been hard to obey. There seems to be some kind of real increase in bad behavior in this home. No one argued, by the way. It was just sort of obvious. We were really uh, just intense levels of ridiculousness uh, that we were dealing with. And I even said to them, and by the way, guys, I feel like I'm far more susceptible to frustration and irritation, too. I've raised my voice uh, quite a few times. I've, I've handled this, these situations incorrectly, too. There's, there's something going on. I'd like you guys to understand what it is. It's what mommy and daddy have walked through many times. Whenever there's something very significant taking place in our life, we oftentimes have an increase of spiritual havoc. And it's funny, but it usually takes me a bit to recognize it. Instead of just, oh, we have an increase of spiritual havoc. All right, let's take a stronger spiritual stance against that. I said, it's taken me a little too long here. It's pretty obvious what we're dealing with. We're in the process of uh, purchasing this campus, which has taken 10 years The process is so outrageously, I could say hilarious, because it depends on which which glasses I put on, outrageously miserable, or outrageously hilarious. Okay, I'm going to choose this one, so I'm going to use the word hilarious here this morning. And uh, so in this process, there has been a tremendous increase as we're coming to the close of this of just spiritual havoc. And it's not just my family that's felt it. I'd say anyone that's associated with Ellerslie has probably noticed it at certain levels. like really odd. And so I was telling my kids about that. And I said, so here's what we do in response. We need to learn to stand against this. Now, I've taught all my kids how to resist the devil and how to stand in the authority of Jesus Christ. And I said, but here's something I want to do better. We all are at the point where we're ready to stand, And then I you know, said, Reese and Lily, pretty soon when you yield your life to Jesus, you guys are going to understand this. Right now, those of us that have a clear understanding of the authority of Jesus Christ that we have because of our faith in him are going to stand on your behalf. And therefore, and so I gave a mental picture. I go, okay, guys, the Incredibles. Do you guys remember that scene where all the ships and everything are flying around and you have a family that's all in position? Okay? I said, that's what I want. And I said, do you guys know what it means to be in position? And they sort of look at me like, what? What are you talking about? I go, okay, so a wrestler has a position. So when I used to wrestle, you'd get down into a low position. You'd be in a, a strong position. So if someone comes up to you and pushes you, you're not just falling over. So I had Dub stand up, and so he stood up, and so I said, now watch, guys. I shove him, and he goes flying back into the chair. <laughs> And I've done this with the guys at Ellerslie many times. Now, you guys can't know about that because I might do it to you, and you need to act like you don't know. But so I said, you see, Dub wasn't in a position. He wasn't ready. But the key for Christianity is that you know you're in hostile territory, and you know there is an enemy around you, so therefore you don't walk around like this. You walk around ready for battle. And I said, there's our problem right there. And I can't be the only one ready for battle here. We all need to get in position. And so that's where the the picture of the Incredibles came in. (laughs) I said, like that. They're surrounded by the enemy, but as a family, they're united, in position. So let's start in this story. It's interesting because this story has multiple layers to it that all play into the same outcome, which is a moment of crisis known as a floating Milky Way wrapper. It all started with a miscarriage. Possibly one of the most difficult moments in our life. Strong faith, strong vision of the power of God in our life, and we were robbed from. And it was a crisis of, anyone who's gone through a a miscarriage understands. It's epic in the soul. It doesn't seem very big when you try and communicate with other people because there's been so many miscarriages and a lot of people have had it. So as a result, it's hard to know how to properly respond to something like this, but you feel violated. You've been stolen from. There is, and it's not a small thing. It's not like someone stole $10 from your desk. It's a life that you have already bonded with at a certain level, and it's a grieving that you don't recognize how deep it goes. And it leads to a vulnerability, because if it's happened once then there is the fear and the sense of fragility that you struggle with moving forward. It's a big deal, in other words. So anyone who has gone through it understands. But this event, which we're going to say the devil's grab, opened and awakened Leslie and I at a whole other level. Because first we started with God. How did this happen? Why did it happen? You know, the, the classic questions. Is there anything in our life, in the way that Leslie and I would describe it, any open doors in our life, any open windows? Why do we have a snowdrift on our living room couch? Is there an open window? Is there a hole in the ceiling? Why is it that the enemy would have access into our life to harm us in any way? And so we began to search this out in our life, and God brought us through such an amazing process of restoration. In certain areas that had been blind spots up to that point. So that we could come to a place of great strength and be in position to stand. And so, in this process, in losing a life, what it showed us was the value of a little life. My first instinct when we lost this life was to say, well, it was only, I don't remember how many weeks along, but let's say six. It was only six weeks old. God immediately corrected that you see i was trying to sort of buffer my soul so i didn't need to grieve i didn't know i was doing that i was just maybe it's a guy thing i don't know if girls deal with it too i just know what i was dealing with internally which was to try and diminish the value of the life so that i wouldn't feel as much instead god said i feel would you be willing to allow yourself to feel at the level i feel Eric, did you know that if you don't cry, no one will? That there is a desire and a yearning that God has that the affections that he has, the emotions he has would be shared here on earth in us, that we would be the body of Christ. And I begin to realize that my propensity being to diminish this life, how many more lives on this earth are being diminished that I'm unaware of? And I begin to say, God, I don't want to just feel for this life give me a heart to feel for all the other lives that you feel for. It was a very risky thing. And God began to open less than I up at a whole nother level to feeling what God feels, to aching where God aches. And so I remember this, this season, we began to pray and we said, God, we, we know that you're wanting to do more in and through this area, but our heart is breaking for the weak, the lonely, the downtrodden, the poor, uh, the orphan, the widow. What do you want us to do? We know we need to do something. We need to begin to express your heartbeat in this earth for these weak ones. And so we went through a a season where we began to, every day, Leslie would spend a good portion of the day, and she would study. All those stories you know in the world that you don't want to hear about, all the, the loss and all the abandonment, all these things, she started going and collecting all these stories, and every night she would read them to me of what was going on in the world so that we could have God's lens. And it was painful, it was hard, and she created a huge notebook in this. And this little boy in, in Mexico that was begging on the streets, and he had Down syndrome, and he was begging to survive. And God was simply saying, there's one. This little girl, five years old, that was being auctioned as a slave in uh, Central America. And on a slave block block to minors. Five years old brings like one of the highest prices. And the tension in my soul was so great because before I had distanced myself from it. But now God was allowing me to begin to get close to it and say, okay, God, I, I, I can't despair with this. And I also can't feel a burden that's greater than what I can handle. You know what I'm built for. I have to trust this to you, but I'm willing to allow your burden to become mine. So in the process, we we felt like we needed to ask God specifically, what do we need to do out of all these things? Like, give us a specific assignment. We have a platform. We have a stage. We can make an impact. God, what do you want us to do? Why are we here at such a time as this with this burden? And so we prayed for two weeks, fasted, and we asked God to be specific. And we felt like after two weeks that he said orphans. And so that's what began a lot of what many people have seen in our life as far as we have four adopted kids. But that started with one. And in our life, uh, that started with us being willing to go to an adoption agency, not to adopt. We I, I didn't have money for it. I wasn't thinking we were going to do this. And we went to an adoption agency in Berthoud. I told Les before we came in, you know, we're just doing a fact-finding mission. We just want to get God's heart. We're not coming here to adopt. I mean, oh, well, I don't even know what that's like. And... So this, at one point in time, I remember Leslie saying, are there any other kids? Because it was just like a two-year waiting list. It seemed like there was no need for us. There was like a two-year waiting list for these kids. And so that, okay, well, at least we have some information. Leslie said, are there any other kids? And she said, well, there's waiting children. And this leads to a domino effect in our life of seeing a picture of Harper. And it changed changed me. I'm I'm a different man because of that moment in my life. to actually allow the the Father heart of God to awaken in me unlike I ever knew was possible. And the supernatural story that came out of this, when we brought Harper home, Leslie prayed that it would be the fastest adoption this organization had ever seen. It had been around for 20 years. And I remember them calling us up and them saying, Harper's ready to be picked up. This is the fastest adoption we have ever seen in our agency. When we were picking her up, it was almost to the day, the due date, for that miscarried life. And so to see what started with a robbery, a loss, turned into such great gain in our lives is almost overwhelming to me. To understand that what the enemy may have meant for evil in our lives, to see that God converts those things into not just something that fills a hole, but something that changes our life and lives around us. The Haitian adoption. The devil's grab. So, without going into much detail, I'm going to say it very simply. This adoption was laid out before us as two abandoned children in Haiti. And it was, in a sense, a setup for us. It was false, and it was a scheme that if I could try and articulate what would be the most obvious conclusion for what it was all about was to destroy our lives and this ministry. And it was a setup at, of epic proportions. And many of you in here were a part of that in various ways and know a lot more than what I'm saying right now. However, in the midst of this grab, From the devil, which was so excruciatingly painful, I don't know that I've even been able to process it fully in my life. There is so much difficulty that we went through in this process that it's very difficult. I mean, I could write a a screenplay off of this and it would be a blockbuster, be very intriguing. I don't know that I can write it. I mean, I'd, I'd love to write a screenplay, I don't know that I could write this one. It's difficult. Any of you that were close to it recognize what I mean by that. However, in the midst of this difficulty, we could stick on earthly lenses and we could be angry. We could be bitter. We could be frustrated. We could see the loss that came. The, The weeks, if not months, of not being able to eat, to not being able to sleep. However, Put on different glasses. And what you begin to see is God won. These two kids came home. And though it was maybe set up originally to destroy us in a way that maybe we would never get these kids, these kids are here. And it's not just that they're here, but they're here with victory. They're here with wings of fire. In other words, it was an overcoming there here. The divine redemption. So many moments in the process, I remember having the notion, just like the the desire to diminish that little unborn life, is the desire to just say, look, if it's going to be this hard, I don't want to go down this road. And yet God would never allow that to turn a full circle. It was, no, God, though the enemy has a a plan, God is going to turn this. Watch what he is going to do in this. And it truly is a remarkable story that sets up what we're about to talk about. The fight for our children's souls. At the very bedrock of my being is a desire for my kids to not just know Jesus, to not just have a mental understanding of him, but to be transformed by him, to be filled and indwelled by his power, and to live lives that truly bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. I will die to see that happen in my children's lives. And so four of my children had given their lives to Jesus Christ. They were baptized up here. Some of you were here for them. very significant uh, Thing in my life to see that firm understanding begin to take place. So I have two little kids from Haiti that have been prayed for possibly more than most kids on planet Earth. In fact, I would go as far as to say it's very likely, statistically speaking, I'm a math guy, that that adoption of Reese and Lily probably had more prayer from the body of Christ backing it than maybe any adoption in history. And yet, these two had not yet ever come to a warmed, a readied position to yield their lives to Jesus Christ. So you see sort of that baggage of Haiti upon their souls. And any of you that are familiar with Haiti, Haiti is basically a uh, country that celebrates darkness. Its national religion is voodoo. And so the ties, spiritual ties in this country are so thick and dense that it's hard sometimes on the outside looking in to comprehend how you fight for a soul, how you work through these dense fogs. And again, you have the devil's grab. You have that which would bring discouragement to a daddy to say, can I believe in all my children coming to a saving faith? Can I fight for this. Is this my right? And then you have the enemy's response. If you listen, he'll talk very loudly on those points. And it can be a wrestling match of, again, epic proportions. So the fight for my children's souls and the divine redemption. So I'm going to share this story with uh, the great candy robbery. Powerful story. So I don't know what happened. I think... This is what Leslie's memory is, is that I was given a pile of candy, probably from a well-meaning uh, student that had come through, and they gave me a whole bunch of candy. And I don't really eat candy, so it ended up on my dresser probably when I was like, you know you sort of come back and you put all this stuff on the counter. Well, I put it, could have put it on a counter, but then it's like, I don't want my kids to be near this. So I think it got moved into the bedroom. So it was sitting on my dresser. This is my, my best recollection of what happened. So then somehow in the cleanup process, it's like, what's this? Well, it must belong to Eric. And it got moved into my top drawer, which is where my undershirts are, and it got put beneath all of them. So beneath all my undershirts is a stash, I mean a cache, of wonderful sweet candy. Uh, So we had some Snickers there, Milky Way, we had Butterfingers, Kit Kat maybe. I mean, I don't remember what it was. It was quite the collection, right? So, it's like a little kid's dreamland, is daddy's middle drawer of his dresser. But daddy isn't very aware, isn't thinking. Every now and then I may see a Snickers, and I'm like, what's that doing there? And you know, but it was, you're always in a hurry. When you're, when you're dealing with undershirts, you're not in the point of cleaning a house, okay? So, it's like, eh, hey, well, what's that? And so, it's just, it's just remained there for probably upwards of two years. I had this collection there in my drawer, but it was beneath nicely folded white t shirts, okay? So the candy is swept into Eric's undershirt drawer and subsequently buried beneath a pile of future dust rags. <laughs> Two years pass by. Then suddenly a curious little girl named Barbara Bloody digs into Daddy's undershirt drawer looking for the perfect pajamas. Barper likes to go to bed wearing big oversized t shirts. And so she found my uh, undershirt drawer, and this is you know, this could work perfect. And lo and behold, she discovers the candy. Barbara Blutie whispers to Savvy Rose Slooty that there is candy in yonder drawer. If these names just happen to sound similar to kids that I have, that's just merely coincidence. (laughs) They both peer over the edge with wide-eyed wonder. Inspired by the candy, the two girls play candy store, and little Rilly Pie Honeybun Rudy joins in on the fun, and that is when the secret knowledge of the hidden stash is passed on. Little Rilly Pie wonders oh, ponders these candy matters in her heart. Little Rilly pie honey bun Rudy conspires with little Treacy boy schnuggle dude Tootie. <laughs> Together they craft a master plan to pull off a candy robbery that would make John Dillinger proud. The floating Milky Way rapper. All of this is happening. I've been praying for years For my kids to come to an understanding of their need of a savior. And yet as a parent you feel so helpless. To bring your children to that point of recognition of their sinful state. Recognition of their absolute need. And I mean absolute for the work of that cross. How do you make them beg for it? How do you make them crave it with every fiber of their being? I I teach the gospel for a living. It's what I do. And yet I don't know how to impart it except for being consistent with it and to pray and to pray and to pray and to pray. And so as the story goes, this this happened Thursday. Thursday was quite the day. Uh, In so many different facets, it was quite the day. And so I came home from Something I'd been working, doing something, and I came home, and I remember, uh, I don't, what was his name? Uh, little Treacy Boy. Little Treacy Boy had uh, used uh, the restroom and come back out and was sitting playing, probably on his blanket. And word comes to us in the main room that there's a Milky Way wrapper floating in the toilet. Now, that might not sound like that big of a deal to you, but you have to realize the Luty family does not have Milky Way bars in their entire house. So how in the world would a Milky Way wrapper be floating in our upstairs toilet? Okay, that's just inconceivable. And so there were certain members of the family that were immediately questioned that were most likely potentially associated with the, the deed. And there was absolute denial. I mean, this was nothing to do with this. I mean, there's just no possible way. And so this leads to a process, you know, that would have made Sherlock Holmes uh, proud and of trying to discover how this whole thing worked because then we were realizing, wait a minute, the girls discovered a candy stash the other day. Okay, candy. All right, was there Milky Way in there? Yeah, there was Milky Way in there. Wait a minute. Someone stole that stash of candy? And it wasn't just that they stole it. It's gone. It wasn't in the whole house, except for a little evidence floating in the, in the toilet. What is this? And so as we began to unfurl and uncover, and, and uh, I mean, just the most amazing thing began to come out. It was a conspiracy of two little 4-year-olds during nap time with seven other people in the house in Luty Central, they crawled through the main room, <laughs> made their way into Mommy's and Daddy's room, which they are really never in, okay? So I couldn't even fathom that they would ever be in that room, let alone know where to go in that room and access the stash. So, I mean, this was just impossible for me at first to believe. And then they had to get that stash back out, and downstairs, but there's monitors on this whole situation, and no one sees it. No one, which is impossible. I mean, we have, uh, we have quite the watch crowd with our kids. I mean, you just stick four other kids uh, in a house, if they see one of these kids out of their bed and running around during nap time, I mean, that's like, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> so this is just inconceivable to any of us that are involved in this, that this possibly could have ever happened. And yet, it did. And this uh, stash was subsequently devoured. And then, with the brilliant mindset to then put it in the toilet instead of the trash can, the the wrappers, and flush. (laughs) Which would have worked (laughs) had not God grabbed a hold of the end of one of the Milky Way wrappers. And sort of pulled it out and let it float around. <laughs> Could you imagine poor little and really, when they, they found out? By the way, that I, hopefully you know real names. But uh, when they found out, hey, there's a, a Milky Way wrapper in the toilet. What's that about? I wouldn't even dreamed of starting with them on the list. There's no way. The supernatural brilliance of sin in this was so shocking to me that there was a conspiracy within my very home to defy mommy and daddy at the highest levels. I mean, this is like treasonous. This is high level. Now there was a massive cover-up, too, that was brought in. There was all sorts of lies that were lay, laid on top of this. It was deep. It went deep. And so I, I remember the difficulty I was wrestling with. Recently, they spent a good deal of the afternoon with their noses in a corner. And I came home later that night after we we had soccer, EPA soccer, and we came back, and they were still standing there in the corner. They'd gotten a little glass of water and some bread. Uh, (laughs) And uh, uh, all the other kids went to bed. They're usually the first to bed. They're still awake in the corner. Daddy was at a crisis juncture. So I... There are moments when you realize you have no clue how to parent. I mean, how how does one parent? How do you deal with this situation? How do I correct this situation? I can't do nothing. And yet, how do I solve that dilemma? Because the level of understanding of sin in these children was, like, supernatural. How could they mastermind and craft something that I wouldn't have even known how to tell them to do? It's like, okay... If we're going to get up through the main room without you being seen, here's what you do. I would. I'd just say give up. You're not going to be able to pull that one off to get in and out and devour and flush and then get back before anyone knows this is impossible, inconceivable. And yet it was done. And so I was walking around the main living room and I was praying. I was praying out loud so they could even hear it. And I was crying out to God for a long time into the night. It was pitch black out. It was late. I said, God, this has to be broken. They have to see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. I can't show them this. But can you show them this? Can you please bring the fear of God to these children's lives and break them over their sin? Please, because I don't know how to do it. So I'm walking... Around in the main room, praying, 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 and Leslie came up. She'd put all the other kids down, and we were in our transition time. These two are still awake. I don't know what to do. And she looks at me like, "What are we supposed to do? Do we take away their rooms? Do we take away? What else can we cut out? There's, you know, you can discipline in as many creative ways as possible. You can only stand in a corner for so long with your nose against the wall. What do you do in this situation?" And so I remember they sat down and we had them come over and guys, do you recognize how hard this is on mommy and daddy? I mean, do you know what you did? And we went through the list and it's like, it just kept going multiple hands. Maybe like use your hands twice to sort of count through the the problems in this situation. This just isn't good. This can't be in our home. Guys, we're a home that celebrates the life of Jesus. Truth. This is lies. We celebrate giving, not taking. What is this? And so suddenly there was this idea. And I said recently I want you guys to go out the back door to the back patio. It's dark out there. The story of back porch living. Introducing the characters. We have really pie honeybun Rudy. She's the cute little girl in the story. We have Treacy boy Snuggle Dude Tootie, the cute little boy in the story. Then we have lion like a dog, the evil mountain lion. We have Grab and Grizz, the horrible grizzly bear. We have Fusspot Frank, the cantankerous coyote. We have uh, Coming Blizzard, the terrible storm predicted to come. We have the unlocked door in the warm house. So these two little four-year-olds go back onto the uh, out on the back porch. Now, when you're from Haiti, you have an extra level of sensitivity to cold. And so they don't have any shoes on, and they walk outside, and it's, you know... Most of us would be fine in it. However, it's cold concrete out there. And so they put their, cold, their, their bare feet on the cold concrete, and I closed the screen door. And so it's black out there, and it's light inside. And I said, what's it like out there? And they both first instinct say, it's cold. Hmm. It's cold. Oh, what's that? Is that the sound of a coyote I hear? Boy, I, I bet it's dangerous out there. Ooh, there's grizzly bears out there. There's... Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> terrible. You see, you guys are out in darkness. And in darkness, there's danger. There's vulnerability. It's cold out there. There's a coming blizzard. A blizzard's coming. If you're standing out there, what's going to happen? Oh, no. I already mean, I shudder to think about it. And they were shuddering to think about it. It was really interesting... But in the midst of this very, very difficult situation comes this illustration. And I talked about uh, Lion Like a Dog. Uh, the, what, was, what was he? He was the, uh, the evil mountain lion. And what he does is he preys upon you. And he brings his lies to you. And his lies kill you. It's like you might as well just be chewing off your arm. And then uh, grab and grizz, stealing. And when you allow that into your life, it's like grabbing grizz literally eating off your right leg. You see, sin devours you. It kills you. And it keeps you from the warmth of God's love. Jesus Christ came to this earth to create a home for us so that we wouldn't have to die in the darkness and be eaten by the wild beasts so that the coming judgment would not kill us but you have to choose to get rid of that and come in here. It was an interesting point in our discussion as I said to them, I said, do you guys know what choose means? When you're talking with four-year-olds, the reason I've hesitated to bring a very sharp gospel to their soul and to bring them to a point of decision is because I keep saying to myself, they're four. And in my mind, I sort of have this five-year-old range at the bottom saying, okay, if you're going to have understanding, you need to at least be five. And that stumbling block has hindered me for far too long because if they have that much supernatural brilliance to sin, they can have supernatural brilliance to understand the gospel. That was my reasoning that night. You need supernatural understanding right now. Do you guys know what it means to choose? No. How do I say this? Pick? Pick like two cereals up there. If I were to say, do you want granola or rice? Cereal. What, that, that's what it means to pick, to choose. I need you to choose. Do you want to be in the darkness with the wild beasts that will continue to destroy your life and eat you for lunch? Or do you want to come inside of Jesus Christ and be saved? This house, just think of it as Jesus. And he supplies protection. If you were to come inside this door, did you know that grabbing grizz has no power over you? Would you fear a grizzly bear if you're inside a house? Would you fear a lion like a dog, the evil mountain lion, if you were inside this house? You see, these things have no power over you if. And I, Reese or Treese, uh, started crying at this point. The yearning to get inside the house was so great inside him. And he recognized. I mean, I, it was so powerful to see the recognition of sin and where it had left him and that he wanted away from it. He just wanted in the house. And so I, I closed the door, and I put, a, put the lock thing in. It's like a stick thing in. And I yelled through the door, try and open it! Try and open it! And so, uh, really, first started, and she could not get it open. And then uh, little uh, trees, uh started, and he couldn't get it open. And I said, and then I opened it for them, and I said, that is the way we all were before Jesus. We could want to get near God. We could want him to do something for us, but there was a barrier between us. Jesus Christ has unlocked the door. So there was a little screen there, and I said, try opening it. You see, if you choose Jesus, he won't push you out. He'll welcome you in. And both of them, I asked them very squarely, do you want to be rescued by Jesus Christ? And both of them without hesitation wanted Jesus. They wanted to get away from their sin. The dark place. The cold pavement. The growling, threatening creatures. The sense of vulnerability. The fear of the coming blizzard. I don't know how many of you are still on a back patio. But I tell you what, I cannot for my life come give you a good reason why you should stay out there. I cannot help you stay out there. I can only tell you that there's a far better way to live and that's in the safe confines of the salvation of Jesus Christ. I want you to think with me here. If only lion like a dog, grabbin' grizz and fuss park, Frank, didn't chew. You see, if sin didn't erode our life, doesn't it seem like it'd be a lot more pleasant to live on this earth? And many of us, when we have our first glasses, we get mad at the pain we go through. We get frustrated with it. We don't want pain! We don't want difficulty. However, it's the fact that they chew and that we feel it that actually enables God to awaken us at a different level. If the pain of miscarriage hadn't been painful, then what would be lost in my life? However, when we are stolen from on this side, there is a very real sense of pain. But if we have the right glasses on, that very pain itself causes us to lunge into Christ at a whole other level. If your feet are cold because of the pavement, if you didn't feel the cold, would you care about the warmth? But when you feel the cold, it makes you long for the warmth. The Holy Spirit is showing you the house. He's showing you the warmth. He's showing you that you don't need these creatures eating your life. Anymore. Without the chewing of Lion Like a Dog, Grabbing Grizz, and Fusspot Frank, would little Rilly and little Treese have awakened? How can I awaken my children? I don't have a solution. But ironically, in the very night, I run into my greatest challenge in parenting, maybe that I'd ever had with them. I'm at a complete loss. I have no solution. All I can see that night is their sin. And it just seems so deeply embedded. And there is no remorse. There is no repentance. There is no desire to not do it again. It's just they were sad they got caught. So as a parent, you're feeling sort of at a loss here. In other words, the amount of violation in this, how can I get it through to them? How can I have that thought get through to them? I need help this is wrong i shouldn't do this anymore how does god get through to you what does it take you see when the enemy is grabbing do you realize that the fact that we're in this world with pain and difficulty is actually what god uses he turns it he converts it into our salvation Not just our initial entry into the house, but to show us all that needs to be removed from the house, to show us how we ought to be living. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law brought Trees and really to a point where they knew they needed Jesus. The law was their judge, it could not supply them any salvation. Standing in a corner with your nose against a wall doesn't actually save you. All it does is bring about an awareness that the way you're living right now is not good. And so the cold pavement is like the law. The howling jackals in the distance. The grrr of grab and grizz that you sort of hear over your shoulder. This is the law. Exposing, teaching you, saying, without a savior, you are dead. Because unless you can find refuge inside of God, the enemy has access to you. And you can knock on the door all day long, but the law can't open it for you. It can only show you that you're destitute and in darkness. That's the only thing the law can do. But it does awaken you to the warmth of the house. It does say, wouldn't it be nice to find salvation? Yes, it would. Craving the warm house. The devil's take has now awakened the little ones to their need of the home. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. You see, you don't need the growling of grizz and the fusspot. Fusspot Frank has been a a one that I've spent a lot of time dealing with in in our home. And uh, these different characters, there is no more need for the law when faith enters into the story. And you begin to live in Christ and suddenly it becomes clear. It's understood how salvation works. Entering by faith, finding the door is unlocked. So this is what we did. This is uh, one of those challenges when you're dealing with little kids. These two little four-year-olds both yielded their life with abandon to Jesus Christ, desiring to find rescue in him from all of this. They could name in great detail every little sin in their life. It's amazing how heightened they are. Have you ever had it where you have like an eight-year-old kid that just never really does anything wrong, and it's really hard to convince them of their sin? It's like, well, the Bible says you're a sinner. I just don't feel like a sinner. My two four-year-olds know that they're sinners. They know that they're wrong. They know that what they do is even against God. And yet, that was finally awakened to them of the desperation of their need. That they don't want to remain like that. And so then when I said it, once they had had believed in Jesus and they'd come into the home, I said, now that you're in this home, you have the strength of this home. And it's called praying in the name of Jesus. And so we went through, and in the name of Jesus, they booted out all of those little creatures that were still hanging from them when they walked in. A lot of us try and get rid of our creatures before we come in. But actually, the secret is in the home. By faith in Jesus Christ, we actually then receive the strength of the home to actually throw them out. You see, we can't get rid of lying in our life. We can't get rid of stealing and the compulsion to do it. We can't get rid of the fussing. But Jesus can. And so each one of them, in the authority of the name of Jesus, told each of their little creatures to go. And to stay out, they still have a propensity, just like you and I do, to go back to those creatures. However, now they have the tools to boot them out. I, I ask you—you you guys can ask Reese and Lily, uh, Teresa and uh, really uh, this uh, too, what's your position? Is what I ask them, and they say, "In Jesus." Reese has been so happy. Just so happy. I mean, Fusspot Frank's had his work on that guy. And I tell you what, now Jesus is having to work on this little guy. And I'm not saying the work's done. I'm saying I'm seeing something. I mean, Jesus. So he comes up in the morning, usually it's just Fusspot Frank time. And it's like, hey, buddy, what's your position this morning? I mean, Jesus. (laughs) Sure are, buddy. I'm so excited about that. Legally kicking lion like a dog, grabbing Grizz and Fusspot Frank out of the house and sticking them where they belong. Put on those heavenly glasses so that floating Milky Way wrappers can cause you to leap for joy and dance with expectation. You see, when you find that initial signal that there's a problem, you see, that floating Milky Way wrapper led to a crisis in my life that was greater than many, maybe any other parenting, parenting crisis where I felt more weak and more unable and unqualified for parenting than any other time. And yet it led to the very thing that I'd been praying for for four years. And that was the very clear transfer of treason, really, sorry, I have to pause on these names, into the kingdom of light. And even though, are I'm still I'm still standing on this, This was something very, very precious that I witnessed. I witnessed the power of a conversion. The enemy's game being played against him. And the very night it seemed that it had never been exposed to a worse degree, God leveraged it to the greatest end. That's our God. Some of you have floating Milky Way wrappers that have come to your attention even this week. You have issues in your life that are creating drama, potential stress, anxiety, fretting, foreboding. It's the enemy's game. You see, you can look at it with the world's lenses on, and it leads to all sorts of nonsense in your life. And it's almost like inviting all the creatures to you, saying, you know what, you might as well just latch on and start eating me alive. Instead of recognizing that in Christ you have strength, You have joy, and you can have his mind on these matters. And you can say, watch what my God will do in this circumstance. Watch what he will do. He is a great God at converting difficulty into amazing blessing. He will take sorrow and suffering and convert it into grace and glory. Watch! That's how a believer lives. So let's live that way. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose. One of the most framework, bedrock scriptures you can ever have in your life is that one. Stand on it. No matter what is taking place in your life, God will turn it to good. He will. This is how he works. He's unable to not do that. That's just what he does. So if you would start, instead of despairing, rejoicing. Praise God for this circumstance once again I'll be able to see the faithfulness of my God
0: we hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado feel free to make copies of this message but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission for more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E dot com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.